I think I would title it Christmas. There's got to be more to it. I think there's uh, an element of the Christmas story that Christmas Day in itself is a day like no other day on the calendar. It's a day like no other day in human history. There's a particular story that I want to read to you that kind of illustrates this point, I think, in a very unique way. I don't know if you've ever heard of something called the, the Christmas Truce of 1914. It's actually a true story. The year was 1914, and soldiers were having to spend Christmas Eve on the battlefields of France during World War I, the Great War, as it was called. After only four months of fighting, more than a million men had already perished in the bloody conflict. The bodies of dead soldiers were scattered between the trenches. Enemy troops were dug in so close that they could easily exchange shouts. On December 24, 1914, in the middle of a freezing battlefield in France, a miracle happened. The British troops watched in amazement as candlelit Christmas trees began to appear above the German trenches. The glowing trees soon appeared along the length of the German front. Henry Williamson, a young soldier with the London Regiment, wrote in his diary, From the German parapet, a rich baritone voice had begun to sing a song I remembered, my German nurse singing to me. The grave and tender voice rose out of the frozen mist. It was all so strange, like being in another world to which one had come through a nightmare. Silent night, holy night was being sung. They finished their carol, and we thought that we ought to retaliate, another British soldier wrote. So we sang the first Noel. <laughs> and when we finished, they all began clapping. <laughs> and they struck up O Tannenbaum. <laughs> and on it went until we started up O Come All Ye Faithful. And the Germans immediately joined in. This was really a most extraordinary thing. Two nations both singing the same carol in the middle of a war. It is recorded that enemy soldiers greeted each other in the no-man's land that had been a killing zone on December 23rd. The soldiers wished each other Merry Christmas and agreed not to fire their rifles on Christmas Day. The spontaneous ceasefire eventually embraced much of a 500-mile stretch of the Western Front. According to the reports of soldiers at the scene, hundreds of thousands of soldiers celebrated the birth of the Prince of Peace among the bodies of their dead. Now, Christmas Day is a unique day. It is perhaps the only day where a, a global celebration is going to occur in just two days from now. All over the world, people are going to stop what they're doing and celebrate Christmas Day. I just had a conversation with one of the families who has their son, Eric Johnson, from our church, is over serving in Iraq right now. And mom sent him a little Christmas tree that she could pack up. There's a little Christmas tree in some hunkered down unit in Iraq set up. On the other side of the world, they're going to be celebrating Christmas Day over there. House after house, if you drive down the streets right now, house after house, decorated for Christmas. Uh, businesses are shut down on December 25th. Entire industries are going to put a pause on making money. Of course, they've made plenty on the way up to that day. But they're going to put a pause on that on this day. And things are going to slow up and come to a halt. Now, what is Christmas? Where does this idea come from? Well, most of us will maybe be surprised to know the Hallmark people did not invent it, like all the rest of our holidays. They didn't come up with this one. The retailers didn't invent it. Santa Claus didn't invent it. He didn't even come around in the United States until about the 1800s. What is Christmas? 
Well, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ in a little town called Bethlehem. That's what Christmas is. Now, question, why such a global celebration for one particular birth? There's been billions of people born. Why does the whole world stop and pay attention on this one day to the birth of one person who was born nearly 2,000 years ago in a Bethlehem manger? Now, I mean, listen, think about this. I'm going to have a birthday in about two months. This is not going to happen, right? I mean, I'll get, I'll get a few phone calls from a few friends who will remember. Most of my family will remember. Not all of them, but most of them will remember this is dad's birthday or my son's birthday. Uh, but nobody's closing up business. You know, it's not like we're shutting down. You go be with your family. It's Keith's birthday. No one's doing that for Christmas. I won't walk in the Hallmark store and there won't be like a, an entire row all dedicated to my birthday. But that happens at Christmas. Why such a big deal? I mean, when you look on a global scale, there's other birthdays that are significant, right? George Washington's birthday is significant. But it's only significant in America. Go travel to China on George Washington's birthday. They're not doing anything. He's not, he's not even known. No one cares. Why are we celebrating this one particular birth? Well, because this particular birth was the birth of one who was the Savior who came to save the entire world from sin and its consequences. Now that makes that particular birth a little bit unique. The Apostle Paul eventually learned about who Jesus was. He says, Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's what Paul said. I want to read a couple of passages to us this morning. The first one's in 1 John chapter 3. To try and see if we can get a sense of what this global celebration is about. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know, here's the reason, you know that he appeared to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. In verse 8 it says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Listen, there's got to be something more to Christmas. I mean, I appreciate decorations. I, I go through all the, the headache of putting them all up, and taking them all down and enjoying the season and, and all that events and activities. But there's got to be something more to Christmas. There's got to be some explanation as to why is this such a huge event on the calendar? Well, there is. If you just look at a couple of items that are in this particular passage, it says he appeared to take away sins. And this passage tells us sin is lawlessness. You know, I don't know what your definition is for sin, but the Bible's definition for sin is when we break God's law. And we may not realize we're breaking God's law, but how many of you know that you can break laws and still be held responsible even though you didn't know you were breaking the law? How many of y'all have figured that out? How many of y'all have got a speeding ticket? I was driving through Kenner just a couple of weeks ago. I had no idea how fast I was going. You know, when I told the officer that, it didn't matter. <laughs> oh, you didn't know. Well, well, then go as fast as you'd like. You know, I was breaking the law. Well, sin is breaking God's laws. God has a way for us to live. And if we're not living the way in which he designed us to live, 
called for us to live. If we're not relating to God the way he designed for us to relate to God. If we're not relating to each other the way he designed for us and called on us to relate. Well, then we've broken God's laws. But Jesus Christ came to do something about that. This verse tells us that he came to take away sins. And I think take away sins has a couple of implications for us. One, and I didn't, I didn't realize this for a great deal of my own life, that the Bible says that there is a barrier that comes up between us and God because of our sin. See, I just thought God was nice and at any moment I could just kind of pull into his office like he's a grandfather and just come and ask him for stuff and get things and run out and go do my thing. I didn't realize that the Bible taught that my sin actually made a barrier between me and God. Well, if there's a barrier between me and God, and maybe that would answer some of our questions as to why some of us feel so distant from God. Well, we feel like, you know, I don't feel like God is near. I don't feel joy. I don't feel peace. If he's the prince of peace, I'm not, I don't have peace in my life right now. This is joy to the world. I'm not experiencing joy right now. Well, maybe it would be explained by the fact that there's a separation between us and that joy, us and that peace. But the great news is Christmas was about Christ coming to take away sin, to remove the barrier that was between us and God so that we could experience God again in our lives. And not only that, this passage here talks about the practice of sin. Not just the presence of it, but the ongoing practice of it. That it continues in our lives. That it messes with our relationships. That it messes up who we're supposed to be in life. Jesus came to take that away. So that the practice of sin in our lives doesn't need to continue. That's what he was about. And look at the other thing that it says here. Later on in verse 8. John says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I don't know what kind of definition you have for the devil. Most of us have a cartoon version, and it's really not a good one. We've watched The Exorcist and Poltergeist too many times, and we think the devil's into walls bleeding and strange manifestations. The devil's into getting people to live outside of the plan of God. That's basically what he's about. He's a real spiritual being, and he wants to get in the way of what God has in mind for your life. And for my life, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Works like like pride that make us feel like we're more important than we really are. And therefore, everybody in the universe ought to be orbiting around us. How many of us know that we're frustrated with people sometimes because we can't get them to bow down to us? You figure that out yet? It's like, I want I want your schedule, your attention in your life. I want it to orbit around me and I can't seem to get it to happen. And I'm all I'm, I'm spitting mad over that. Well, what is it? It's pride. The devil comes and puts in our hearts pride that we would make more to do out of us rather than making more to do out of God. He comes, I mean, God hadn't created man too long before he comes tempting man, telling, hey, God had some ideas, but you know, I've got some really better ones. Why don't you abandon God's ideas about how to live life and why don't you embrace mine? You're going you're gonna to enjoy them more. They'll be better for you. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. In this room, we heard Chris Curtis talk about his life and cancer diagnosis. You know, Jesus, Jesus went about a world that was racked with sickness. And he went about healing, physically healing those who were infirm. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to overcome death. Look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. These, these, these are just passages I wanted us to look at for a moment to get a sense of what was Jesus Christ up to in coming to this earth? Listen to Hebrews 2, verse 14. So since therefore the children share 
in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, Jesus, he partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And this is what God is up to in sending his son. There, there is this reality and the devil kind of holds this trump card. He holds it on everybody. That there's a, a, a reality that every one of us know. No matter how healthy you are today, no matter how old you are today, no matter how successful you are today, no matter how much money you have here, at the end of your life, there's this little thing called death. And it's going to take it all away. On the other side of death, you won't have a dime. On the other side of death, you won't take any relationships with you. On the other side of death, your company name will stay here and you will go on without it. All the acclaim and all the applause of men that you have sought to surround your life with, on the other side of death, no one will be applauding. See, so there's this thing about death. Death death is kind of a weird thing to have, isn't it? And knowing that that's coming, and everybody here knows it's coming. The older you get, the more in touch with it you get, right? I'm in my 40s now and things are starting to creak and move slower and all of a sudden, I'm paying attention to, if you go to the doctor, I could actually be diagnosed with something that means something. You know, when you're 20s and 30s, you're invincible. Nothing can possibly affect you. But now you start hearing things and, you know, wow, that, ooh, that could be me. I mean, you throw like Chris threw the, the cancer word out. Well, you hear cancer. You go to your doctor and he finds a growth. We're not quite sure. Wow. It's like a shadow. And fear begins to come in. And the devil plays that card on you. But, you know, I don't think he just plays it in the category of ultimate ending. I think he plays it all throughout our life. There's a principle of death that operates. See, death by its nature is the absence of life. It's the absence of whatever we've called life. So you can be walking through your life and the devil can be threatening you with, oh, you can't have that. If you lose that over there, your life will be meaningless. If you don't have that relationship, if you don't achieve that goal, if you don't marry that person, if you don't have children... And so you start living in fear that I'm not going to have any children. Or if I do have children, something's going to happen to them. Or my husband's going to leave me. Or my father's not going to accept me. And I'm not going to receive love from my family. And we have all these fears that come up in our life because we think if we don't have those things, we're not going to have life. And the devil plays it like a card and dangles it in front of our face. And we end up with what this Bible verse describes. Lifelong captivity to fear. Now, how many people do you know? You thought for a moment, how many people do you know that have had huge seasons of their lives where they're just controlled by fear? Fear of rejection. Fear of not being accepted. Fear of being embarrassed. How many people in this room, don't don't raise your hands, but how many people in this room would have liked to have done this with your life, but you just didn't have the guts to try it? I don't want to do that. I thought, you know, what, what would my dad say? What would this person say? What if I failed? There's many people living inside of a box, wishing they could have done something different with their life, but they never did because they were afraid to. Well, the devil's into fear. Jesus is into destroying the works of the devil. See, there's got to be something more than this Christmas thing. I mean, if, if I were to get in, if you were to sit down with people, get past the plastic smiles and the quick exchanges, of, how you doing? Fine, great. Get past that stuff. And get into the world of what they really live like behind closed doors, just with the most intimate group in their life, when they lay their head on their pillow at night and they survey how life is going. 
I wonder what you'd find by way of a people who are living in freedoms. I think you'd be very surprised. I think in reality, even though Christmas is the biggest day on the calendar, I think you'd find that George Washington's birthday, in a practical way, is a bigger day. And what do you mean by that? Well, remember, George Washington, he kind of put his life on the line to create a country where there would be certain freedoms. There'd be political freedoms, and we have them. In this room, in this country, we have folks who are free to vote. They exercise their right to vote. They're free to own property, like in other places where you cannot. And So we own property, and we go and mass property. We're free to own businesses. We're free to travel as we want. We're free to have our own opinion and have our own beliefs. We can disagree with people, so we have an ungodly number of talk radio programs and TV radio programs, just so people can have the freedom to say whatever it is that they want to say. And we can call in and we can say whatever we want to say on those programs. We have these great freedoms that George Washington lived and died for us to have. How many of us have the freedoms that Jesus Christ lived and died for us to have? How many people do you know who are not free from an addiction in their life? Well, sure, they vote. They own a house. That's great. I'm glad I get to do those things. But you can live in a cage in your freedom, can't you? For every day of your life, it's a battle to figure out how you're going to get managed by your addiction today. How do you go about managing the lies that it takes to keep the people from knowing and finding out about the alcohol or drug use that's been going on for years and years and years in people's lives? How people do we know that are walking around in cages like that? People, do you know who are walking around in different sets of self-pity cages? Something's gone wrong in their life, and every time you see them, they just kind of got this poor me attitude. They don't step out, don't try to change their life, don't try to go on. Just they're in a cage of feeling sorry for themselves. Or people that you know that are in a cage, trapped by bitterness or unforgiveness. Somebody's, somebody's done something wrong to them. Somebody in their past. And they have not been able to move on from it. Boy, you get into a conversation with them in that category and you scratch that for one second. And then, man, it just comes out of them. God, don't bring that person up. Right? And you may be in this room. I may be describing you. I know that. There's got to be. Apparently I was describing the sound man. (laughs) Sorry about that, Jose. I won't talk about you any further. (laughs) Forget how much power those guys have. But you know, there's got to be something more to Christmas. When we read these passages that we just looked at, Jesus Christ was a deliverer. He was coming on a mission. He was coming with power. He was coming to destroy things. He was coming to make a difference. One of my favorite Christmas carols, we sang part of it this morning. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel who mourns in lowly exile here. Until the Son of God appears. That's just not some, some song about some nation way long ago in captivity. It's the song of our lives. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. God wants to set us free. Jesus Christ came to this earth on a mission to set people free. Now, I just want to take a moment and I want to talk for a couple of minutes about what does freedom look like? And I'm going to read a Bible passage from Acts chapter 26 to do this. To tell the story of a man probably familiar to to all of us here. A fellow named the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul tells in a similar way what Chris did and Gwen did and Stu and Nancy did. 
The Apostle Paul is going to tell his story. And so we get a chance to see what does it look like when people encounter Christ. If you were to walk up and talk to Chris Curtis this morning, who's here, or talk to Gwen Loria, who's here, or talk to Stu and Nancy, who's here, and listen to what the encounter with Christ did to that situation in their life. Listen, I mean, they're living real life. That was just a sampling of what most of us are experiencing in some way in this life. Life is real. And issues are real. I sure hope Christmas is about something more than decorations in a manger scene. Some nice get-togethers and go back to life the way it was before the holidays. Well, it was about something more than that. Listen to the Apostle Paul's life in Acts chapter 26. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. He was on trial because he actually believed that there would come a Messiah. One day he would actually show up and he believed it actually has happened. And that Messiah was crucified and he came back to life and he believed in a God of resurrection. And he was on trial for that. Verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. And Paul was not always a Christian. Paul was the most violent uh, opposer of Christianity in the first century. He goes on and he says, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, oh king, he's testifying before the king in the land. He says, At midday, I saw on the way a a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your own people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes. Here's Paul's mission in life. You're going to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus Christ said to this man known as Saul. He becomes the Apostle Paul. At one point, his name is Saul. He's a man who gets tremendously, radically changed. He encounters Jesus Christ on his way to do his religious duties that he believed he was doing the right thing to actually persecute Christians. He meets Christ. And one of the things that happens when you meet Christ, and I think sometimes we need a much better definition of what it means to really have met Christ, 
is you become a different person. Saul actually has his name changed as a, as a result of this. He goes from Saul to being Paul. His views in life change. At one point, he's going to kill Christians. Now he has this mission in life. Now he wants everybody on the planet to become a Christian. That's different, isn't it? Something happened. If you'd have met Paul just after this event, you'd have wondered, what on earth happened to you? You are a different man. Here's a man who had grown up as a Jew. He would have been prejudiced against Gentiles. He would not have wanted to eat with them or be around them. But when he meets Christ, that changes. How many of you know when you meet Jesus Christ for real, he changes your attitude towards people? No longer on the basis of skin color or nationality or differences. You begin to feel differently about people. And here's Paul standing before a king with a story in his life. This is a different man. But you know one of the things I find very interesting about Paul's story, and I think it's very helpful for us, is in verse 5, he says, They have known, people who know him have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Paul, Saul, was a religious man. This guy going around beating up Christians and putting them in jail. This is not some gang member. He's a religious man. You'd have been glad to sit next to him in church. He's a good guy. You'd have liked him as a neighbor. Unless you were a Christian, you might not have liked him. But otherwise, you'd have liked having Saul as a neighbor, as a friend. He was a good, moral man in his life. You understand... In his life, he grew up, he grew up in a Jewish culture, which was a religious culture to grow up in. Uh, Sort of like growing up Catholic in New Orleans or Baptist in Alabama. I'd help you out there. That's that's kind of the culture that he grew up in. You know, as 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 an infant, he would have been circumcised. He would have been taught the Bible. He would have memorized huge portions of the Old Testament as he grew up. His parents would have trained him daily. He would have gone to prayer daily. He would have attended synagogue each week. Throughout the year, there were special festivals that he would have attended that were about honoring God and worshiping God and sacrificing to God. This was a religious man. Now, he wasn't just your garden variety good religious man. He was in the elite of religious men. He was a Pharisee as well. Now, some of us only know the Pharisees from Jesus' clashes and encounters with them, so we kind of don't like them. But here's a good, better frame of reference. Dick France says... Readers of the Gospels tend to think of the Pharisees as self-righteous hypocrites. But this is not the way most Jews saw them. They were the religious purists, enthusiastically committed to preserving and obeying the law, and keen to encourage others to do so. Judged by this standard, they were model Jews, and they were widely respected. Now, Take that definition and put yourself in Paul's position. You are a religious man. You are a respected religious man. You are a leader in the community of religion. You're a Pharisee. You're in a, in a very small, elite religious club. You, know, you remember Nicodemus in the, in the New Testament? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And what's interesting here, because Paul learns this and Nicodemus learns it, you can be religious and still not be right with God. Nicodemus had his ears pinned back one day in a conversation he has with Jesus. He's a respected religious man and he comes to Jesus privately by night. Jesus, good teacher, you must have come from God. The things that you're doing, nobody else could do but you. Jesus interrupts him, turns to this 
upstanding religious man and says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine the shock? Nicodemus is thinking, wait, wait, this can't apply to me. I'm a good religious man. What do you mean I won't see the kingdom of God? Jesus was pointing to something much greater, much greater than religion needs to happen in a life to come into a relationship with God. You must go from being Saul to being Paul. Nicodemus, you need to become a different person if you're going to be in relationship with God. It's not enough just to be religious. There are many good religious people, and they're in the Bible, who were not right with God. Saul, Saul, good religious Pharisee. Why are you persecuting me? Here's a good man who actually in his life was opposing Christ. He didn't know it. So you can be religious and not be right with God. I, I tell you, for the, for the folks that you watched their testimonies this morning, religion was not an issue for them. They were all religious. If you talk about their religion, they've been exposed to religion before. They have been to church. They've been around and heard stories about Christ. I grew up around religion. I went to church. I knew what it was. I had a strange, well, maybe not a strange pattern, maybe too much of a common pattern. You know, I could, as a teenager, I could be out on Friday night doing drugs, getting high, doing illegal things as well, and, and lying all over the place to get away with it, and turn around on Saturday and go to confession in church, and turn around the next weekend and do it again, and turn around and do it again and again and again and again and again. That was my religious pattern. See, whatever Christmas was, whatever Christ was doing when he came to earth to destroy the works of the devil, to separate sin and its practice in my life, it was not having an impact on me. There was a woman one day. For 12 years, she had suffered terribly with a bleeding and a health issue. She had spent everything she owned. And one day Jesus was coming in a crowd. A crowd of people are all around Jesus. And in her heart rises up this faith and she says, you know, if I just go and touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And this is a throng, hundreds of people. You know, Jesus is like a rock star. You know, he's come to town, he's passing through the crowd. Everybody wants to touch this guy. And the crowd's bumping into him, and she reaches out, and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus stops. Who touched me? His disciples got a clue in at this point. <laughs> Jesus, what do you mean, who touched you? Uh, I don't know, the last 8,000 people you just walked by touched you? There was something different about this woman touching Jesus. Because when she touched him, he reached back and touched her. And she became healed. See, the, the works of the devil were crushed when the Son of God's power came into her life. And she became a different person. See, there's got to be something more to Christmas. Well, there is. There's the power of God. There's the presence of Christ coming into someone's life and making us different people. Let me close with this thought. How do I know if I've really received Christ? That may, be, that may be a very good question for many of us to ask at different points of our lives growing up around religion. How do I know if I've really received Christ or if I'm just in the, the big crowd? How do I know whether I'm that woman who pressed through and got touched by God or whether I'm just part of a big crowd who everybody would say, well, we all touched Jesus. No, you didn't touch him like she touched him. 
Paul was amongst a religious crowd until this bright light comes into his life. Now, how do you know? How do you know whether you've received Christ and encountered him in a way that he wants you to encounter him? Well, I would say two quick things. One, do you have a personal story to tell? Did you meet Christ in such a way that you got something to say about it? Paul's standing before a king and he's telling his story. King, listen, I'm on this road to Damascus one day and this bright light comes. Now, I think it's interesting what Paul does with the rest of his life. He encounters Christ in this bright life and then Christ reveals himself to Paul. And Paul, remember, Paul's the guy who ends up saying, Jesus Christ, I get it now, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am foremost. You see something that happened in this moment? He all of a sudden understands who Jesus Christ is before he was opposing him. He also understands something about himself. I am the worst of sinners. He needed to come and save me. That's what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. He had an encounter with Christ. Now let let me highlight something that didn't happen to Paul. When Paul goes on to tell his story... This is not a story about seeing a light. I know lots of people have had experiences. Near death, I was on my deathbed and they lost me and they brought me back to light and I saw this light. And they go on and, they, and for the rest of their life they tell a story about seeing a light, seeing a light, seeing a light. They don't say anything about Christ. They tell a story about seeing a light. Paul saw a light. That was not the testimony. The testimony was when he got right in his mind, who is Jesus Christ and who am I? Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners, of which I am the worst. That was Paul's encounter with Christ. Listen, whether you're Paul in a religious background, or whether you're the woman with an issue physically and infirmity for 12 years of life, there's probably some folks here who've had issues for longer than that. There is something more to this story of Christmas. Jesus Christ came into this world to touch our lives in powerful, effective ways. Now, if you're here this morning and, and maybe you don't have a story like that, I would say if, if you don't have a story of encountering Christ, then I would very confidently tell you that you have not encountered him. I don't want to leave any room here. Jesus Christ is God. Come in the flesh to this earth. If he reaches out and touches your life, you will have no question about it. You will change. You will experience God. You'll experience freedoms in your life. Do you have freedom in your life? Jesus came to deliver. He came to set people free. Are you experiencing that? My heart goes out to us. I'm listening to Gwen's story. Ah, And just, I had people in this audience flashing before my mind. You know, I know, I, I know, I, you know, I'm a pastor of the people that go to this church. And so I know their stories and I know the stories of their lives. And I know the stories of some of you. And I wonder, are there some folks here that, that you're here even this morning, in this Christmas season. And things like addiction are turning your life inside out. Now, you didn't learn anything new this morning about a manger scene. Jesus came to the earth. He was born in Bethlehem. He ended up dying on a cross. You didn't hear anything new. But you're not free. And you're going to walk from this meeting and go back to a life where you're controlled by alcohol or drugs. 
Jesus and you might be part of the crowd this morning, can I encourage you? Jesus Christ wants to be bigger in your life. He doesn't want that for you. You may be here this morning, you're just, you're controlled. There's anger in your life. You've got busted relationship after busted relationship in your life. You've walked away from a marriage and from children and from friends. Jesus Christ came into this world to destroy the works of the devil. Hatred, unforgiveness. These are the works of the devil. Jesus Christ was on a mission. His mission was not to be laying in a manger and only appreciated there. In just a moment, in just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be that woman in the crowd. You're in a crowd right now. And you can stay in the crowd. And you can say, yeah, I went to church. I was in a hotel. It's a little weird. But I went to church. And they talked about Christ and sang some songs, carols. You can be in the crowd, listen to me, and not encounter Jesus Christ. Or you can be here today and say, you know what, I get it. Jesus, you wanted more from my life than what I've experienced so far. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be that woman who presses through the crowd and extends your hand and says, Jesus Christ, come touch my life. Come do for me what you wanted to do in my life. Come do for me what you had in mind in setting me free and putting an end to sin's practice in my life and its control in my life. And give me new life forever. I want to plant this thought in your mind. From now on, when you see the manger scene, I want you to, I want you to, I'm going to hypnotize you now. You see manger, you think mission. You see manger, you think mission. Everybody with me? Manger, mission. Manger, mission. Don't ever look in a manger again without thinking of the word mission. Jesus Christ was on a mission when he was laying in that manger to grow up as the Savior of the world to remove us from the consequences of sin and to put us in relationship with God once again. Listen, this morning, that can happen for you right here. Don't, don't be for another moment. Don't be Saul of Tarsus for another moment. Going through life around religion, but, but you've not experienced Christ. The same Jesus Christ who was dead and was raised from the dead years later meets the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus years later and changes his life. That same Jesus Christ can meet you right here in this hotel room and change your life this morning. Let me ask everybody to stand up with me as we close. I thank you. I thank you that what you were doing in coming to this earth was so much bigger than perhaps what we've ever imagined. I thank you that you were on a mission and you could see our lives and you knew that there would be real issues that we would face. Issues that would break our hearts. Issues that would break our bodies. Fears that would come in and control us. Disappointments that would become paralyzing. I thank you that you were on a mission to remove those sins, to forgive us, and to destroy the works of the devil in our lives. And I thank you that this morning you are still on that mission.
and the way in which you met Saul on that road. Lord, you want to meet some people here this morning on their road to life, wherever it is that they're on their way to right now. Lord, you wanted to meet them here in this place. And you planned the collision course. They thought they were just invited by a friend. Jesus, you planned this moment. Because there's so many here that you've looked at their lives and you said, enough. Enough of being away from me. Enough of wandering. Enough of the brokenness in your life. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And you'll find rest for your souls. Take my yoke on you and learn of me. Jesus, thank you that this morning you are calling people to yourself. And you're wanting to set people free. If you're here this morning, just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. If you're here this morning, and you want to make a decision, you come into a relationship with Christ by a decision. At a moment in time where you say, Jesus, I understand what you're about. I understand what you want from my life. And I surrender my life to you. I want you to come into my life. I want today, I want December 23rd of 2007 to be a new day for me. I've heard what was said this morning. I've heard it in your word. I believe you've got some plans for my life. I don't know what all of them are. But this morning, I want to surrender. I don't want to run anymore. I don't want to do it my own way. I want to give you my life. Well, if that's where you are, I want you to just bow your head right now. And I want you to pray with me. I want you to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you prayed out loud to him. I believe in you. I thank you for coming to this earth as a savior, as a deliverer. I thank you for living a life that was sinless and perfect and for being willing to go to a cross to shed your blood and die for me like Paul the worst of sinners who needed you to save me and forgive me this morning I receive that forgiveness I ask you to wash away the sin of my life. I ask you to help me start over again. I ask you for a new life. Jesus, come into my life. With all the brokenness, with all the questions, Jesus, come into my life this morning. Come into my heart. Change my life. I want to be yours from now on. I want all the plans that you had for me. Open my heart and come in. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing this song in close. I just want to ask you this. How many of you guys here this morning, you prayed that prayer for